0: Good morning, and I'm glad to see you again. Uh, Today is Palm Sunday, and it's typically that Sunday right before Easter where we look at the events of the Holy Week. And this Sunday is both a day where there's celebration, and it's a day that kind of foreshadows this dark moment in history we call the cross. Now, it's a day of celebration because we recognize that Jesus ushered himself into, triumphantly, into Jerusalem, and he was greeted with Praise and worship and singing and a a parade type of atmosphere that they were recognizing the King of Kings, David's son coming into Jerusalem. And just a few days later, we see this dark plan of God taking place that ultimately leads to Jesus' death on the cross. And it's always made me wonder we have this triumphal entry, a couple days later we have his crucifixion. Couldn't God have done it differently? Couldn't he have made salvation different? But he required the cross. Why did he require the cross? Why did he require this really tough moment in history to take place? I think Paul answers that question, especially in the book of 1 Corinthians, the very first chapter starting in verse 18. He describes to us why indeed God's plan had to include the cross in his redemption for us. And so we're going to start in verse 18 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians and go all the way through verse 31, the end of the chapter, and we're going to see God unfold his reason why the cross was so necessary. Why? this triumphant week had to end in the most tragic death of Jesus. And of course his resurrection on the following Sunday. So let's start in verse 18 and 19 of 1 Corinthians chapter one. We read, for the message of the cross, and there he brings that focus in right away, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved It is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. So God starts out by saying, we know that when we talk about the cross, when we talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about sin, when we talk about our debt to God, when we talk about being separated from God, and that the only way to be united with him is through this humble message of the death of jesus he knows that the world looks at it and calls it foolishness the world says well there's nothing you're doing if you need to be saved if you need to be rescued you have a role in it you have a part in it but the cross ultimately humbles the person to where they have no boasting before god in their salvation it's all the work of God, and the human looks at that, one who's unsaved, the one who doesn't know God or acknowledge that he even exists, looks at that and says, I don't want any part of that. It looks silly to me. You're putting faith in a God you can't see. You're putting faith in an event we don't even know if it historically happened, and they ridicule it. They laugh at it, and they dismiss it completely as a fable, as a myth, as a crutch for people who are weak. And God says that instead of that, there really is something incredibly powerful in the cross, especially for those who believe, those who acknowledge the cross and see it for what it truly is. It's not foolishness. It's actually the power of God to save. And in doing so, in mentioning the cross, He quotes Isaiah by saying, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. So it should come as no surprise to us when we talk about Jesus and the cross and eventually his resurrection, the world looks at it and says, all of that is nonsense. All of that feels like guilt. All of that feels like law and obedience. All of it feels like make-believe. Now, they might tell you, hey, as long as it helps you out, good for you. But when you start telling me that this is the only way to be right with God, when you tell me this is the only way to live your life in a way that is righteous and holy and pleasing to God, that's where they draw the line and say, I don't want any part of this. And God says the cross humbles that attitude, humbles that mentality completely with the power that it brings. He then moves on into verse 20 and 21, in which he says, Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So Paul basically says, okay, I want everybody who thinks they are smart. Everyone who thinks they're intelligent. Everyone who thinks they're wise. Everyone who thinks they know everything about being right with God. And I want them to come face to face with the truth of the events of the cross and the meaning of the cross. And I think that's what he's talking about here. He says, all of these people who are wise and have all those degrees and have all that intelligence and have all that power and maybe respect from the world in the end god makes them foolish god makes them look pretty silly in the end and he does that by way of the cross and now when paul mentions the cross here he's not just mentioning the physical event that jesus died upon the cross by the roman soldiers but he's talking about the wholeness of the gospel, that whole message of salvation. He then continues, having silenced all the worldly experts, like okay, God silenced the experts when he reveals the power of the cross, because the power of the cross really is real. It really affects and changes lives in a way that can only be described as being born again, rebirth, completely made new, and the experts can't give reason for that. They can't give an explanation for that. They look at it and just say it's make-believe, it's emotionalism, it's, it's, it's weakness, it's, it's, it's a myth. But God says there's real change that happens in a person. There's a real relationship that occurs when sins are forgiven, when you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you recognize what he's done in life and in his death and in his resurrection. Paul continues to speak specifically to these wise people, to these intelligent people, to these scholars and know-it-alls, and to the people who have this uh, power in the world, in culture, in society. He says in verse 22 and 23, the Jews demand a sign, and the Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Paul really speaks to two groups of individuals. He speaks to the Jews and the Greeks who had completely different ways of looking at life. He looks first of all to the Jew and says, there's people that are looking for signs and wonders, who want miracles, who wants an emotional bond and connection. And when we start talking about the gospel, that salvation is through the humble means of faith they go where's the fun in that where's the excitement in that where's the thrill in that where's the evidence of that and the Jew looks at the cross and says no it doesn't meet my needs because I'm looking for something really entertaining really emotional and really spectacular and if you tell me that I have bowed my head and say a sinners prayer and I'm saved There's nothing spectacular outwardly with that. So the the Jew says, oh, that's, that's, that's I can't handle that. I can't get past that. There needs to be something bigger and more grand. You see, when they look at their own history and Jewish history, they see things like the burning bush of Moses. They see God parting the Red Sea. They see the plagues. They see incredible family line stories. They see Daniel being saved in the lion's den. They see... Kings being rescued, they sing prophets that are just doing amazing miracles. And they looked to Jesus to be the miracle worker. And as long as he was doing miracles, man, the people followed him. The people loved him. They came out in thousands and thousands and were fed by him. They heard stories about him healing, raising the dead. And they were looking for that type of thrill and excitement of seeing something spectacular and just emotionally grabbing. And when Jesus said, It's simple as this believe on me and you shall be saved, they, they couldn't get over that. They wanted the spectacular. And that's not what they got on the cross visually. What they got on the cross was a humble death and a humble faith that embraces what Jesus did. And the Greek, especially when Paul went to them in Athens in particular, they were looking for. Just incredible wisdom and logic and philosophy and argument, and Paul said, "Well, the argument is that he's risen from the dead." And they looked at that and said, "Oh, that's spectacular! That's thrilling! But it makes no sense. It's illogical. It's it doesn't meet our requirements of being philosophically and emotional and mentally um, exhilarating." And so when they saw that, they just simply said, that's foolish to believe that someone died and rose again and that somehow that unites us with God. You see, what the Greek thought is, when I get united with God, it means that I have come to this spiritual plane of pure, logical thinking. And that makes me close to God. And Paul's like, it's not logical thinking that draws you close to God. And it's not a spectacular display of power and rescue that makes you close to God. What makes you close to God is the gospel, the cross. The work of Jesus His death and resurrection. And so when Christ is preached, Christ crucified, that verse 23, stumbling block to the Jew and foolishness foolishness to the Gentile, it leads to verse 24, to us. But to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So if you really are looking for spectacular, if you're really looking for signs and wonders, or if you're looking for a system that is very logical and, and precise and consistent and um, thrilling to the mind, Paul says you have all that in the cross. Because what you have in the cross and the message of Christ is you have the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, the power of God is displayed in the fact that God can appoint His Son to be your substitute to live a perfect life and die a perfect death. And somehow, in that act of Christ's death, when we believe it, when we say, yes, that's mine, when we acknowledge I should have been on the cross and not Jesus, what immediately happens is God says, I now apply to you all the perfection of Christ, just as if you've never sinned a day in your life. He justifies us. He makes us right with him. He makes us one with him. He resurrects us. And so if the Jews are looking for this great sign and wonder, what is greater than a resurrection? And so everyone who confesses Christ as their Lord and Savior and sees the cross as their hope That's a miraculous, spectacular moment in history that applies to us resurrection. And to the Greek, who says, I need to have all this logically figured out in order to appreciate it, Paul says, this is the wisdom of God. This is the perfect knowledge. There is nothing more perfect than knowing that God is holy and I'm not. There is nothing more perfect than knowing God expects holiness and perfection. And I can't give it. There is nothing more perfect and logical and makes sense that God says, I have to make it up to you because you can't do it on your own. There is no way you can earn it. There is no way that you can in any way achieve God's standard. And so he sends his own son as a substitute for us there is beauty in that there's poetry in that there's logic in it and there is amazement at it why would God do it well it's this part of his character called grace mercy love tenderness it's part of who God is and he says I want that displayed in you I want you to realize that and so Paul goes on to say in verse 25 That we have to have the right understanding of God and he gives us that right understanding in verse 25 he says for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength Paul is not saying that God is foolish and weak he's not saying that at all but he's saying compared to mankind compared to how we tout our achievements how we brag about our successes how we feel that we are the superior in all of creation while we're the crowning jewel of god yes we have to understand that as smart as we think we are we're not all that smart compared to god as wise as we think we are we're not that wise compared to god so he gives us this relationship that as as foolish as you think God is or as weak as you think he is, we are far more foolish and we are far more weak. All he's explaining to us in that verse is that God is indeed much wiser than us and much stronger than us. He doesn't lack in any knowledge and he doesn't lack in knowing how to apply knowledge. And he certainly doesn't lack in ability. God is able. He's able to accomplish all of his perfect will that he wants to accomplish. There is nothing outside of his power and control, according to his nature, to accomplish. He can do it. And we, on the other hand, are severely limited in our knowledge. We're learning every day. And we are severely limited in our just physical strength, right? Because we grow weaker and older, weaker and older, and eventually we pass away not true with God though God doesn't grow weak and old God doesn't grow in knowledge and understanding he is perfect in all of his ways and then Paul right after showing us this picture of God in reference to us in particular he then goes in the next few verses verse 26 through verse um, 30 and he talks about our nature says okay here's God He's not weak, and he's not unlearned. And here's the true picture of us. And he starts that in verse 26. He says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were before you were called. All right, so he asks us, take a moment, think about it. Before we were part of God's family, before we were saved, before we were united to this relationship with Christ and of course to each other as the body of Christ what were we like okay so in my state of being unsaved what was I really like now Paul answers that a couple times in the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians definitely worthy of looking at but he goes directly into answering that question at the end of verse 26 following to verse 30 he says not many of you were wise by human standards. Oh, Paul, you're starting to hit my gut. What do you mean I wasn't wise according to the world's standards? He explains it. He says, not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Paul just starts out by saying, hey, as I look at God's church, as I look at the people in front of me that I preach to, and being completely honest, maybe we're not the cream of the crop maybe we're not the best of the best maybe we are people with physical limitations emotional limitations mental limitations birthright limitations importance and influential we may not be that that's a hard honest opinion of ourselves but Paul says hey that's where we got to start. And when we think about cro- the cross being the great part of God's plan and why it was necessary, maybe we need to start with thinking about what God was working with. And what God was working with in my relate, in response to me or in relationship to me, was um, a pretty miserable, self-centered, self-centered sinner that wanted to do nothing but satisfy his own sinful, lustful desires. I could make some good grades, I could accomplish a few things, but I was not going to be some (laughs) rock star scientist or citizen that made a huge difference. I was just normal, average. Nothing wrong with that. But Paul says, hey, let's start where we're starting is. And the start is we're just normal people, average people, nothing spectacular or worth writing home to. But in verse 27, that kind of changes a bit. And he says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So he says, you know what? God chose us. God chose people who may not be the rock star, may not be the super athlete, may not be the brilliant person in the room, may not be the person who was born into royalty, but that's okay because this demonstrates God's amazing power and wisdom that he accomplishes through the cross when he takes someone who the world considers average, who the world considers, eh, maybe below average, or who the world considers, why would I ever waste my time with them? They're not Influencers, they're not someone I want to be connected to, they're lowly. And God says, That's where my power is displayed. When I take someone who was weak and I make them strong, when I take someone who was foolish and make them wise, when I take someone who has no reputation and I give them the name of Christ, who has no place in the universe and I make them sit upon a throne next to my son. That is the power. Of the cross. And he continues in verse 29 and 30 in that same vein and says, So that no one can boast before himself. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. It is because of God that we're in Christ Jesus. It's not because of our beauty, intelligence, wisdom, influence, power that we have this relationship. It's because of God, it's because of his cross, it's because of what his son did who has become for us the wisdom of God and then he defines for us what he means by the wisdom of God and it's not knowledge it's not even a perfect understanding of something he describes the wisdom of God or the logic of God as our righteousness holiness and redemption that's what the cross accomplished holiness righteousness and redemption holiness is being set apart to God Righteousness is being made right before God. And that idea of redemption is being whole before God. Meaning, I'm not lacking anything. Nothing is undone. That's the power of the cross. That's the power of the gospel. And the world may not understand it. The world may laugh at it. The world may ridicule it. The world may try to silence it. But if the world wants to see real power in action... God's power in action, God's wisdom in action. All the world has to do is look to you what change God has made in your life. I mean, if you're tuning in now on a Sunday morning, God has took your Sunday morning and made you focus on Him, focus on others, pray for others, worship Him. That's amazing transi- transition that God has made in your life. That's powerful. That's spectacular. That should be on the news. That should be what we talk about. What God has done in us, God has taken something that the world discarded and said is average, and he's made it righteous and holy and redeemed. And there's a take-home point here. There's an application, there's an answer to the, so what does all this mean? He says in verse 31, therefore, as it is written, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because we can kind of start getting a little bit big-headed. Okay, God has taken something simple and he's made something amazing out of it. I'm pretty amazing. God took something weak and gave it strength. Took something foolish and gave it wisdom. Took something that was in debt and paid it in full. Took someone who was part of a broken family and made him part of a whole family. And we can start thinking, yeah, there's something really special about us. And God says, oh, remember, all of what is accomplished in your life, I've done it. There's no big head here. So when you start thinking that you're now super special to the world, God says, no, remember, if you want to boast about something, don't boast in yourself. Boast in me. Now we're going to close here in a moment, and I have a a video hymn that I'm going to share with you by uh, Thomas Kelly. It's called Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. And it's a hymn that was written in like 1803 or 1804, and Thomas Kelly wrote over 760 hymns. He wrote a lot of hymns, and this is probably, definitely, definitely one of my favorite top five hymns ever. And it's a very somber hymn. It's not like joy to the world that you're gonna get up and wanna kinda, you know, clap your hands and raise your hands and shout for joy. It's a hymn that looks at the dark event of the cross and puts it in perspective. So the hymn is a little bit slower. It's a little bit more reflective. All the words are on the screen. I'm not sure that we've ever sung it at Calvary, uh, but I hope it becomes one of your favorite hymns, and we're gonna do that now, and after that is over, we're gonna close in prayer.
1: Smitten and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Tis a Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tis a long expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord. By his son now, God has spoken. Tis the true and faithful. his disowning Those insulting His distress Many Hands were Raised to wound him None would enter post to Save But the deepest Stroke that pierced him Was a stroke That justice Gave sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of The rock of our salvation Is the name of which we boast Lamb of God for sinners wounded Sacrifice to cancel guilt None shall ever be confounded Who on him there.
0: I hope you not only enjoyed that hymn, but maybe by the third or fourth fourth verse, you were able to sing it uh, with us. Um, Again, I think that the words in it are incredibly powerful and demonstrate a real dependence that we have upon the cross and why Christ had to die in order to demonstrate both the wisdom and power of God in making us a people who had no reputation, who had no great standing in the world, part of God's kingdom that one day will rule heaven and earth under our King of Kings and Lord of Lords thanks again for joining us this morning cannot wait to either see you live or again on stream next week for Easter so let's close in prayer again father we come before your holy throne acknowledging our weakness and acknowledging your strength acknowledging our foolishness and acknowledging your wisdom Father, as we go through this next week until we meet again, I pray, Father, that we would have ample opportunity to boast about you, to boast about what you're doing in our lives, how you care for us, how you love us, how you nurture us, how you've forgiven us. Father, may we boast about you greatly because the power you've demonstrated in our lives have changed us forever. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, amen. Until next week, God bless.